Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The world is experiencing a dam building boom. According to research by my guest today, David Holm, there are plans underway around the world for the construction of over 3,700 new dams. And this explosion in dam building comes after a period in which there was a lull in the construction of new dam projects. So what accounts for this new interest in dams? Where are these new dams being built? And do dams contribute to sustainable development or do they detract from it? We discuss these questions and more in the episode you are about to hear. David Holm is an academic who leads the Future Dams Consortium at the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute, and in this capacity, he helps policymakers make better informed decisions about dam projects, and we discuss at length what academic research can tell us about what makes dam projects succeed or fail in their stated goals. This episode is part of a new content partnership between the podcast and the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. For the next several months, we will be featuring from time to time experts from the Global Development Institute who will discuss their research and also the pressing news of the day as it relates to global inequalities and development. If you'd like to learn more about the Global Development Institute, you can go to gdi.manchester.ac.uk or click on the ad on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I'm excited that this is the discussion on which we will kick off the partnership. So here is my conversation with academic David Holm. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The main reason that people uh, build dams is because water and using water uh, really helps with meeting our basic needs. We need water to drink, to keep hydrated. Uh, We need water because we've moved into agriculture and we need it for our crops. And then increasingly, we've found that we can use water for hydroelectric power, that we can produce relatively cheap electricity by trapping water and running it through through turbines. So uh, water is fundamental to life, but then it also allows a whole set of other things to happen, yeah, such as generating electricity, such as producing surpluses of food. And historically, that has been what has then allowed for development, as it's uh, often called. It's allowed us to urbanize. It's allowed us to become specialized, to increase our incomes and to have specialized education and health services. So it it underpins all of the things which are associated with a better quality of life. So, so dams are sort of central to human evolution in, in, in a way. 
Well, certainly if you're looking sort of uh, at, at social organization, then, uh, I mean, some academics will argue dams are absolutely, and water management is absolutely fundamental to understanding how sophisticated societies uh, evolved. And they point to Mesopotamia and Egypt, um, the, the, the Tigris and, uh, and other river basins, uh, and point out that where you first begin to get urbanization and sophistication, arts developing and uh, social organization, then often that's associated with dams and water management, because in a way to be able to build and operate dams and manage water, you need to have thousands sometimes tens of thousands of people coordinating their activities. So you have to have a sophisticated organization. And those sorts of arguments would then argue that ultimately, when you're thinking about sort of states and about nation states nowadays, that actually the idea of how quite how you form a, a nation comes from trying to manage water. And quite often that was associated with uh, trying to dam it and then send it down canals. Uh, so your research shows that we are currently in a dam building boom. Before we discuss the implications uh, of our current sort of dam building boom, uh, can you talk a little bit about previous uh, eras in, in sort of more modern times where the decisions to build dams have, have ebbed and flowed, let's say? Yeah, I mean, our research is particularly focusing upon the, the, the present boom of dam building in Africa and Asia and Latin America. Um, and if you look at those parts of the world, quite often they used to be called the developing countries and sometimes still are. Then there's really been three phases to dam building and major investments in water management. When the countries of Africa and Asia in particular became independent in the 1950s and 1960s, there were... 25, 30 years of, of dam building around the uh, around the world, and certainly the uh, richer countries in the world, the USA, Canada, the UK, and European countries and Japan were very keen to uh, sometimes lend money, sometimes provide grants, and per, and encourage their engineering companies to build dams um, in the developing uh, parts of the the world. Around about the 1980s, things began to slow down a bit and we began to actually move into a sort of 20-year moratorium almost. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that many of the dams that were built in this sort of first phase of dam building um, were not delivering their promises. They cost a lot more to build quite a lot of them. And often they didn't provide the amounts of electricity that had been predicted. They didn't provide the amounts of irrigation. Uh, they didn't necessarily generate the number of jobs that had been claimed from them. So there were questions about whether um, they were actually delivering um, on on the as investments is, is the Aswan dam a good example of of that dynamic uh, you know this was the big development project by Egypt's first you know nationalist leader Gamal Abdel Nasser which didn't seem to be delivering on on the promises that he had when he had it built in the 60s yeah I mean Aswan dam I suppose it, it it's fundamental to the Egyptian economy now but it certainly it didn't manage to do, deliver um I think the amount of irrigation water and electricity that have been promised, the, the costs did um, did overrun. And when you look at that dam nowadays, then actually people looking at the Nile Basin, whether it's sensible to have a, a big reservoir, which is basically water storage, in one of the hottest 
parts of the world where you have very high rates of evaporation. And, you know, it's not the sort of place nowadays, if you're looking technically at it, maybe where you'd you'd want to have a dam um, on the Nile. So, yeah, the, the Aswan Dam would, um, would illustrate that. But probably even more so, there are a whole series of irrigation dams uh, built in Africa, quite a lot of them in Nigeria um, and other parts of West Africa. And they never irrigated anything like the areas of land that was... Uh, that was promised, and often they disrupted uh, pre-existing agricultural systems and destroyed um, quite large fishery industries. So certainly with those sort of irrigation dams in uh, in West Africa, there were very big questions about, about whether they'd actually sort of done more damage uh, than they'd actually uh, led to benefits. And so all of that led to a, a moratorium that, that sort of lasted for uh, most of the 80s and 90s? Yeah, it led to a moratorium, but that moratorium was also partly one began to get the environmental movement really gathering momentum in the late 70s and throughout the 80s. And uh, the environmental movement pointed out that many of these dams were certainly bad if you were thinking about biodiversity, thinking about the conservation um, of of uh, of areas that had been set aside for uh, for conservation purposes. So there was a very strong environmental uh, voice too about this and also there were concerns about indigenous people and particularly about pastoralists that many of these dams seemed to displace people and the people they displaced were not well treated they were promised compensation but they didn't get that compensation they were promised they'd get new land but then 10 years later when you look they haven't got it so in a way there was the question about are these wise investments? The questions about are these just damaging the environment too much? And then questions about are these damaging the people who are who are displaced by these dams too much? So dams fell out of fashion, but now they're they're hot again. So so what changed? Well, they, they fell out of fashion. I mean, essentially because the World Bank began to increasingly look at the social and environmental impacts what's called the safeguarding agenda. And it became incredibly expensive and long-winded to try and go through those World Bank safeguarding procedures. And essentially, the World Bank, which had previously been involved in many of the major uh, Western dams, uh, stopped lending. The Soviet Union, which had in the 1950s and 60s been very keen to build dams, as with the Aswan Dam in Egypt, the Soviet Union could uh, clearly no longer afford to build dams. So one had this period um, from the, the, the late 80s moving through into the early 2000s when relatively few dams are built. But then in the early 2000s, uh, I mean, China is being increasingly reported to be uh, an emerging power and the Chinese economy has been growing massively. And the Chinese government begins to think about its relationships, certainly with Asian countries and then moving on to African, um, Latin American countries. And one of the things which they hook onto is we could invest in infrastructure because the the World Bank and the sort of uh, Western uh, controlled uh, financial institutions are not funding infrastructure. And quite often that means looking at dams and sort of major water management systems. So from the early 2000s, the Chinese begin to increasingly finance dams. And certainly quite a lot of the recent dam building has been financed by a variety of Chinese um, agencies. The Indian government has got involved in this. Brazilian, uh, the governments and private companies have got involved and there's been private money coming in. But initially it was the Chinese who really began to invest in dams and water management. 
And, and what are some examples uh, of their investments um, that um, perhaps demonstrate both the positive and negative uh, outcomes of, of Chinese investments in, in dams? What are, what are some specific dams you could talk about that are illustrative? Um, well, I, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the particular dams that uh, one might look at would probably be uh, some that have been built in Myanmar and uh, over that's on the, the Irrawaddy and uh, the Salween. And then looking over to uh, to the Mekong uh, Delta in Laos uh, and that, um, I mean, on the positive side, these things um, may have added, uh, well, they certainly add to initial economic growth rates because the construction industry feeds in short term into economic growth rates, which many uh, politicians and businesses uh, like. They've increased um, the availability of hydroelectric power supplies. But then when you look on the the downside, there are the problems of uh, environmental uh, damaging the environment. Some of that is a concern about the environment in its own right and the loss um, of of species in a way the challenges to some of the uh, the dolphin species in Southeast Asia when you begin to block the Mekong and the way you begin to disrupt uh, the, the areas where they live, uh, but also in terms of the fisheries and whether one finds, uh, certainly one finds that uh, the people who've made their living out of uh, fisheries for a long time, beginning to report that the fish have moved on, the fish are no longer available, the water levels have changed, and that in a way that important uh, species of fish for livelihood purposes have uh, have been disrupted. And one also has I mean, significant reports about the people who are being resettled, um, not being given uh, the land that they've been promised, not being compensated in the way that they've been promised. And certainly the this safeguarding, this idea of of making sure there's an, a, a, a really serious environmental study about what the consequences are going to be, making sure there is a study of the social impacts. Then uh, many of these uh, of these Chinese problem, uh, programs in in Southeast Asia have been accused of not 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 focusing enough on these safeguarding issues. So. On balance, then, it seems that the Chinese investment in dam building, which has led to an explosion in dam building today, has yielded sort of more negative outcomes in terms of, you know, individual social welfare and in terms of, say, you know, like the, the sustainable development goals. You know, on the one hand, you're, you're providing a renewable energy source. On the other hand, you are causing all sorts of social displacement and, and environmental havoc. Um, I mean, would have to say, I mean, the, the jury's out on that. Um, and that, I mean, there have certainly been negative costs in environmental uh, and social terms in, in terms of the people that are displaced. The thing that's much harder to get a handle on, and our research is trying to, to get a handle on this, is trying to measure the benefits, particularly for the broader population. And if you build a dam, it may displace 5,000 people. You can actually, in a way, track the livelihoods of those people. That's often done by governments or by civil society groups. So you can record, in a way, the ways in which the lives of those people are damaged by the dam. But then the electricity that's being generated may be providing um, electricity for schools and health services for a million people. It may be potentially underpinning perhaps, you know, 10,000 or 20,000 or 30,000 jobs in a nearby city. And it could be in a way that the benefits outweigh 
those costs that have been imposed on people. But it's very hard to, to actually track and measure those, uh, th- those in a way, what have sometimes been called intangible benefits. You know, there are these, these improvements that are being spread across a large population, but it's very hard to work out what size those are and exactly how many people uh, th- they're getting. So, I mean, one can't write off these Chinese uh, dams at the moment, but one certainly needs to be looking closely at them as one did at the first generation of dams to work out uh, in a way, were they worthwhile and to work out how might we do it better next time. And certainly if if you look for our uh, the research we're doing, we're not looking to make perfect dams, but we're certainly looking to make better dams to make sure that the problems that can be anticipated, particularly the environmental and social problems, that those are actually mitigated and managed in ways that mean that people aren't ultimately disadvantaged and that the degree of environmental damage um, is understood and is is judged to be um, acceptable uh, by the domestic political systems of the countries that are are proceeding with them. If we had a big worry, it is the danger that this second phase of dam building will actually repeat all of the mistakes that were made in the first phase and that we won't actually have learned how not to make those mistakes. And in a way, um, yeah, that's that's really foolish to do that. Um, it's, it's hard to work out what a perfect dam is, but one should be able to look at what the mistakes that were made in the past and make sure those mistakes don't happen in the future. And it's not at all clear that we have done that. Well, well so, so let me ask, what does your research uh, suggest are elements of a good dam? What makes a dam... Uh, a good what 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 makes sort of the positive side of the ledger of of a dam building project outweigh the the negative what does your research suggest okay well uh, anyway being academics uh, we make it very complicated but we i can simplify it to a degree at the heart of our work uh, is a a modeling exercise an exercise that allows uh, the simulation of what the impacts of dams will be. And that's not just an economic simulation. Uh, in the model that we've got, you can look at 10 different criteria and look what the impacts will be. So you could look at how much electricity will be produced, how many jobs that might generate. You could look at the environmental damage. You could look at how many people would be uh, displaced. Um, you could look at what the impacts will be on fisheries, uh, what the irrigation uh, impacts would be positive and negative. You could look at 10 different things. And it's possible then to do a a whole series of simulations uh, looking uh, at those different objectives, hopefully getting those objectives identified, I mean, by the domestic political processes, domestic political processes saying in a way, you know, these are the things that we would want to achieve. These are the things that would be uh, unacceptable. And we can actually run up to potentially millions of simulations and then group those in clusters so that we can help decision makers understand, you know, if you try to maximize the hydroelectric power, then maybe you'll get these major environmental problems. If you just back off a bit on the amount of electricity you're looking for, then the environmental problems could be dramatically reduced. You know, if if you're looking uh, particularly for irrigation, then, you know, if you went for this particular design, then we could actually provide everybody who's being displaced 
with at least the land they've got now. If you go for a different design, then that might not be possible. So you can begin to actually look in very sophisticated terms. So we're looking at whether it's possible to, to in a way, rather than having simple cost benefit analysis that try and turn everything into, this is the dollar cost, uh, this is the dollar uh, that will actually be benefited. You actually have a dashboard and you could look at, so what are the economic benefits? What are the environmental benefits or disbenefits? What's happening to, uh, you know, to, to the local population? What are the impacts on uh, employment in this region? So, you ha- could- have governments used this this um, model that that you've developed? Have you worked sort of directly with governments so far on this? Um, well, certainly. We're working uh, in Ghana at the moment. In October, we'll be running this with a whole set of Ghanaian institutions, taking our model and getting our Ghanaian colleagues to help us work out how it could be applied in Ghana, how it could match the specific um, hydrological and geographical features they've got and helping them to, uh, to identify what the 10 criteria that they would want to use and looking at its feasibility. Uh, these models are being used in the UK. Certainly when you look at the actually the, the, wa- the, the water industry in the UK about whether to invest in dams, whether to invest in pipelines and what to do, then these models are already being used um, in, in the rich world. Um, that has to do with much broader water management, um, but also with, with some of the, the major dam systems. We're finding particular interest uh, in groups like the World Bank, which are now getting interested uh, in dams again, uh, in the in with the International Water Management Institute. We're finding there's a lot of demand uh, in a way for these tools, but also with developing the capacity so that these tools could be used by um, scientists uh, who work for national governments and by sort of NGOs and scientists working for for nonprofit organisations. So in in a way, the, the, yeah, these tools are being used in in a way in in the rich world and the OECD and the USA. But now, particularly with the computer costs dropping so much, with in a way having supercomputing capacities without actually needing to build a supercomputer, we we can really uh, take these now into into looking much more at lower income countries, but not just having ex. Foreign experts do this, actually creating the capacities and that. And our project is looking at producing these. You know, when we produce these tools and that, they'll be open access, mm-hmm. um, and we'll be looking at at having uh, capacity development support so we can help people adapt them it's, for their country. It's it's interesting to me that that you just mentioned that the World Bank is wanting to get back into dam building, and uh, I mean that that seems to be a consequence of of the belief that through tools like yours, you know they can build better dams now than they could, you know, back uh, in, in the sixties and in the earlier period that, that you identified. Um, are there other countries, governments that are also looking to sort of get back in the dam game? Um, yeah, well, certainly. Well, I, I actually, I mean, in the U S at the moment um, is developing, uh, I think in Congress, what's called the build bill. And it's about uh, the U S contributing much more to infrastructure in developing countries, looking at setting up a a U.S. international development finance corporation that would put, in a way, U.S. aid money into leveraging U.S. private sector money um, to build infrastructure of all forms, of which dams and major water management systems would be be one of them. A sort of attempt, perhaps, to balance against China's Belt and Road uh, initiative. 
it definitely seems to be balancing that out. And when one looks at it in a way, uh, I mean, one can criticize the Belt and Road and criticize the Chinese, but in a way, um, should African Asian countries be denied access to finance for infrastructure? Well, people would say no. I mean, if you want development, then we know from what's happened in Europe and the USA, you have to look at investing in some forms of infrastructure, but ideally you choose it well. And so actually, if there's a choice between a variety of Chinese finance and World Bank finance and maybe other forms of finance uh, from Western uh, banking and financial systems, then it would be possible certainly for countries to think about which which packages of finance will meet their needs. And it in a way means this potential domination of infrastructure investment, which the West has criticized China for, will in a way... <laughs> Criticizing the Chinese, but not putting your hand in your own pocket and finding an alternative is really a hypocritical thing to do. If, um, if, if we don't want the Chinese government and Chinese institutions to dominate infrastructure investment, then certainly the, the Western countries that are complaining need to find a way of financing um, infrastructure in the developing world. So we are are speaking just a few weeks after one of those dams in Laos burst, uh, which seems to happen not infrequently. And I actually ran a piece on my own website, UN Dispatch, about how that um, dam burst unleashed unexploded ordnance uh, all over uh, the, the countryside that had, uh, you know, been dropped there in, in the Vietnam War. It's a terrible problem in Laos. But this is just yet another example of um, – the media, perhaps, and, and perhaps I'm guilty here, of portraying directly or indirectly dams as being a, a negative. What's behind that perception? Well, I mean, I, I think obviously, um, I mean, on the sort of headline you're talking about, some very bad dams have been built. And that one that burst in Laos recently and washed people away and destroyed hundreds, if not thousands of livelihoods is an example of how you can get a bad dam. That dam cost a lot of money to build and it's actually produced totally negative results. So in a way, dams like that clearly yeah, should not be built, uh, should never have been thought about it. In a way, the problem when one looks at the media, though, is that, yeah, it's like 90, 95% of it is basically saying stop dams, build no dams. Um, but people need access to regular water supplies. People need access to electricity. I mean, you and I have it. Why shouldn't Africans and poor Asians eventually be getting access um, to it? And when you begin to think about that, then, yeah, you need to be thinking about how do we build better dams? How do we build dams that will actually give large numbers of people access to cheap electricity, hopefully that's reasonably sustainable? How do we build dams that will ensure that cities like Cape Town don't run out of water and have to think about closing down uh, you know, the, 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 their water delivery system? How do we create dams that will generate jobs that will allow people to go to medical facilities that have got electricity? And when you begin to think about that, then you realize that, no, the message in the media shouldn't be build no dams. It should be build the right dams and build better dams. I mean, I'm talking to you from Manchester, which gives me and another two or three million other people a very good standard of living. Well, in a way, Manchester is dependent on a number of dams, not for hydroelectricity power, but for water supply. And these dams were built by the Victorians and also built in the early 20th century. There were people displaced by them. There were complaints about them then. Um, 
But those dams were, were built and they now give millions of people and have for generations uh, given people much higher standards of living. So in a way, some dams, a small number of them definitely don't want to be built because they are just stupid. But we need to be looking at which dams should be built and trying to have public debates and then moving on to deciding when we can actually get large amounts of benefits and how we can ensure that anybody who is in a way, losing out because of those dams, how they can be compensated so they, they're not treated um, unfairly. So I think, in a way, with, with the media, if we could eventually get to it looking at how do we build the right dams, that's the question we should be looking at, not just no dams. Uh, well, David, thank you. And, and I asked you that question as a member of the media. I did ask you, how, how does one build better dams? And it turns out you have a robust research around that very question. So, so thank you. Okay, well, we were lucky on that one. <laughs> all right. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to David. And yeah, I'm excited for what this new content partnership with the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute will bring. I think we're off to a good start. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.